So today, like Michael said, I'm going to be uh, preaching and bringing the word to you uh, as we continue our journey through the story of Judges. Now, we're about halfway through, and we've, we've happily called this, this series Cycles. Because if you've been here and you've heard these sermons, they're almost a bit repetitive. Uh, there tends to be this, this ongoing thing that just keeps happening, and you almost get frustrated at the Israelites. You start thinking, come on, guys, at some point, at some point, you got to figure out your, what's going on here. Stop worshiping this God and start worshiping this one. What we see today as we finish up Gideon is the cycle continues. But I think it's going to be important for us to put ourselves into the story and not be careful not to push them off as them and not us. And it's going to be important for us to put ourselves into the story because there's a lot of truths that can be found in it. And so if you want to, open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 7, and we're going to be finishing the story of Gideon today. If you didn't have a chance to hear the first part, you should be able to go online uh, and hear Daniel kind of set the stage a little bit from last week. But today we are at the climax, the pinnacle of Gideon's story. We have reached the battle, the battle of the 300. And I hate to tell you, I, I do not have any dramatic music for you today. Um, if I wanted to, I could break out a very dramatic, deep voice, but I'm going to choose not to today. Um, I actually want to remind us of something. So as we get going, there, there was a sermon that I had preached about a month or two ago where we talked about some of the different literary styles that are found within the Old Testament. Um, and I think that's what makes uh, the Bible so beautiful, is that, that there are times where it is uh, a story. It is, it is an account of historical events. But at the same time, like I had mentioned, there are truths that can be found in that, that when you directly apply it to yourself, uh, that, that there's application thousands of years later, even to these Israelites. And so I think today, what I want us to see as we go through the story and walk into the end of Gideon's life is I want us to, to see it as a warning, a warning as to uh, the trap of success. A story that allows that will allow us to put a mirror against ourselves for correction and rebuke before history repeats itself again for us today. And so let's get going because I am going to try and cover two chapters today and there's definitely a lot there. So, so last week, Daniel, as I said, did a great job of, of kind of introducing our hero of the story, Gideon. Now Gideon, he was introduced by being called a mighty man of valor. Even his name himself actually means destroyer which I feel like really is more applicable for like a little kid. Like I've got a one-year-old at home and I think Destroyer is probably a good name for him right now. Um, but I think that there's a lot of, there'd probably be a little bit more uh, expectation out of him as he gets older. And again, he's known as Destroyer. And so here he is being introduced, Destroyer, Mighty Man of Valor, and yet we found him hiding. Not just hiding, but he's hiding in a hole in the ground because he's hiding from the Midianite army who are really capable of just wiping him off the face of the earth without even a second thought. And so what we see is in chapter six, God calls Gideon to something greater. He's obedient in that calling and he actually is given a new name called Jerobal, which really just means the conqueror of Baal. And so Baal was the God that the Israelites were most prone to worship at the time besides Yahweh. And so he took down uh, one of the idols that they had for him and the people came and said, you, you are Jerobal. You are the, the conqueror of this. And so he starts aligning the Israelites' heart towards God. And in that, calling them 
uh, to battle and to fight the Midianite army. And that sets the stage for one of the best and most well-known battles of the Old Testament. And that is Gideon and the 300. But I do want to be clear here in chapter 7. I know a lot of us are probably really familiar uh, with the story. Uh, there are probably elements that we've all heard in different you know, Sunday school classes. I don't know if any of us still had felt boards. Um, but there are probably different aspects of the story that we're all familiar with. But what I want to do is instead of necessarily going word by word, is I want to tell it a little bit more like a story. A little bit more of a narrative. So if you have your Bible open, feel free to follow along. I will be following along in order, but I won't be necessarily going word by word. So I'm going to be kind of overarching story uh, and then taking out the application with it. So starting in verse one, we see Gideon, our hero, waking up early. And if I had to be honest with you, taken from what we've seen of his character in chapter six, and even just what I feel like I could apply to the story being a human myself, is he's probably a little nervous. You know, Daniel laid a great understanding of he's probably feeling the weight of what's going on, the weight of what he's about to do, that what he's about to do is almost a death wish. But it's not only a death wish for him, because as the leader, the Midianites would have most likely tortured him to make an example of any other army that would try to come against them. But he's also almost sacrificing his own family and sacrificing his people the, the Midianite army would just wipe them off the face of the earth. So he's probably, like I said, he's waking up early. There's probably a lot of weight and pressure that's on him. He's scared and nervous, but yet in the midst of that, he's still obedient. He's still obedient to the call of God because I, I would argue that being obedient doesn't mean that you're always going to feel like it, but rather you continue on despite the way that you're feeling. And so with Midian encamped to their north, Gideon hears from the Lord, who tells him in verse 2, the people with you are too many. There are too many for me to give to the Midianites into their hand. Let Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Did you catch that? He says you got too many people. This is an army of about 32,000, which is sizable. The issue is they're going up against 135,000, which means that each Israelite man would actually have to take out four Midianites just to break even before they died. And actually, a few of them would actually have to take out probably five or six just to break even. But God told him to reduce that number down to a point where there are now a measly 10,000 people where now each Israelite would actually have to take down about 13 to 14 Midianites. Again, hand-to-hand -hand combat, just coming at each other. That would be easy. It's almost a seemingly impossible task for these Israelites. But I think God asked him to do this because he knows our hearts. He knows that we are more often going to go to him when times are tough, when we're suffering, that when we've tried and tried to persevere on our own, we'll most likely turn to him because we've realized that we are incapable of doing it ourselves. That a genuine walk with God is made perfect in suffering because that is when we cling most tightly to him. And so I think he realizes this, and so he challenges them on the front end. Hey, I'm going to make this hard for you now. Because I think it's in success and blessing that we find our most uh, the most efficient traps. Because every victory is an opportunity to either receive praise 
or give praise. And God knows it's going to be easy for the Israelites to say to themselves, if they win this battle, it's our warriors that won this battle. It's because our warriors are so much stronger and faster and better than those Midianites. But God tells them that, no, it's him that is better. And so he's trying to do this again on the front end. So God tells them, let the ones who are scared, just let them go home. He says, uh, just if you're scared, leave here. You, you don't need to worry about this, which again leaves them with, with an abysmal 10,000 men, again, against 135,000. However, God goes another step further. He says, you still have too many people. He tells them to go take a drink from the river and he tells Gideon to actually watch how they drink. He says, if they bring the water to them uh, to keep them, but if they go down, put their face in the water, uh, than to send them home. So after this strange selection process, Gideon's left with 300 men. That means one man for every 450 Midianites. One man would essentially have to take out more than their entire army each just to break even. So God has successfully turned this long shot story into a true impossibility. And he's turned what we would consider an underdog story into a suicide mission. And now I would say that it's easy for these numbers to kind of get glossed over. I mean, I've been in enough math classes that it's easy to just let those numbers fly right over our heads. So I want to try and put this a little bit into perspective. So I spent four years at SBU, and for a stretch of my classes, I had to travel to Buffalo, Missouri. So if any of you guys are familiar with that area, you have Bolivar, and a good, a good little drive you'd have to go over to Buffalo. I did it about twice a week. There's halfway in between Bolivar and Buffalo is a city called Halfway. Yes, Halfway, Missouri. So in between these two sprawling metropolises is a city called Halfway, Missouri that has about 170 people. So we'll, we'll, we'll give the Israelites, we'll give them a few more. We'll, we'll double. We'll double the size of Halfway, Missouri. You get about 300. Springfield has about 150,000. So give or take, the battle that he's preparing to embark on would be essentially equivalent to, I guess, two halfways make a full way. I don't know. So we'll take two halfway Missouris if they were to try and take on and conquer everybody in Springfield, Missouri. Like I said, it's, a, it, it's more than a long shot at this point. It is impossible. So in this moment, God has pushed Gideon to the very limit of his faith. And just as he does with us, he doesn't do it just to push the limits of your strength. He doesn't do it to push the limits of your determination or the, limit, or the limits of your stubbornness. But rather, he pushes it so he can push your dependence on him. Gideon is a young, frightened guy who God, God is using not because he is spectacular in any way, but rather it's that he is so unspectacular, so mediocre, that the only person who's going to receive the praise is God himself. So starting in verse 9, God tells Gideon to go out and take on the Midianites. He gives Gideon a dream. Uh, Gideon then communicates that dream to his officers and to the rest of the men there, and they, t and they march forth, prepare for battle. Now, this is a battle that a lot of us probably don't envision when we think of 300. Uh, it's not 
Gerard Butler and all his glorious abs and fantastic beard. I'm sorry. But really what they do is as they make their way to the camp of Midian, he gives everybody a trumpet. I guess you could bash somebody over the head with a trumpet. But he gives them a trumpet, an empty vase, and a torch inside the vase. He says, in unison, at Gideon's command, to blow the trumpet, smash the jars, revealing a lit torch, and yell for the Lord and for Gideon. Now I'm going to be honest, when I read this, and every time I read this, I wouldn't necessarily recommend this as a repeatable strategy to win at warfare. Um, but whether it was naive faith or pure stupidity, these 300 men move forward with it anyways. So of the 300, you made three groups of 100, and they then surrounded the camp. And in the middle of the night, they did just as Gideon had told them. They blew the trumpets, smashed the jars that, in, that were in their left hands, revealing the torches that were on the inside, and yelled, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And as everybody would expect, the Midianites were caught completely off guard, and in their own confusion, grabbed swords and just started swinging and stabbing each other. Now, I'll, I'll give them a little bit of credit here. Um, this was obviously well before electricity. They probably is in the middle of the night, so their torches that they had had probably burnt out. So when you hear the chaos, you hear the confusion, you hear all this noise, uh, you probably grab swords, and if it's completely pitch dark, and you're seeing movement, you're hearing things in the distance, it's probably a kill or be killed kind of situation in your own mind. Again, in the confusion, in the chaos, they just start swinging. So then these 300 men then pursue the Midianites that are left and took out a few of the leaders, essentially giving them the unexpected victory. And it would be easy for us to look at this story and to just kind of wrap it up in a nice present, a nice little, uh, a nice little bow, and to say, if you just have faith, that God will do amazing things through you. And I don't think any of us would argue necessarily with that conclusion of the story. However, I think there's a little bit more to this victory, and I think there's a little bit more depth to this story, and even how the victory happened. So I want you to, to hold your place in Judges chapter 7. I want you to turn in your Bibles or flip over in your phones to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The victory for these 300 men and for the nation of Israel is a picture of how we ourselves can find victory over sin in our own lives. That when we realize that we are those clay pots, that the power and the strength is not found in, in the durability of the clay pots, but rather it found in the light that is within the clay pots. That it's because the light of God that gave these men the victory over the Midianites. It's the light of God that shines in those pots and in us as well. It's that same light that allows us to have peace in the face of adversity, to give us power in the face of weakness. And it's that same light that can give us victory over sin the same way that it gave victory over the Midianites that night. And so really with that being said, that pretty much takes care of what we would consider the hallmark of Gideon's career. 
Uh, many Christians will see him as a strong, faithful man who stepped up to the plate when it was required of him. And again, they would be 100% correct in saying that. However, the advantage of going through books verse by verse, chapter by chapter in the Bible is that we get to see the whole story. We don't just necessarily glean the highlights uh, of a person's social media account back then. We get to see the whole picture, the good and the bad, the before, the during, and the after. And I think for the story of Gideon, there are big lessons to be learned with not just how he handled the big moments in his life, like this battle, but how he handled the aftermath. Because like I had mentioned earlier, every victory is an opportunity to either receive praise or give praise. And none are immune, not even Gideon. So if we're thinking about our lives, I'm thinking about these, again, these big moments, these hallmark moments. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of them, or at least uh, pretty consistent ones that come to mind for most of us. Uh, for students, how about that time when you finally graduated? Finally being able to walk across that stage, maybe some of you are still waiting for this moment. Uh, I know what I think about for me, all the hours that were spent studying, all the gallons of coffee that were drank, uh, all the tests, the writings, the labs, the tests, the tests, a lot of those. Uh, and finally being given that, supposed to be a piece of paper, it was actually just an empty tube, but finally being told, you made it. Finally, you made it. How about to you husbands? How about that moment right before your bride walked through those doors? Or how about the wives? The moment before you got to walk through those doors to your husband. Now for me, it was Francesca Battistelli's Forever Love. A good slow build with the double doors at First Baptist Church in Bentonville, Arkansas. How about your first child? Talk about the, the fear that Gideon was probably going through, the anxiousness. Now, for me, I had to wait nine long months for that. Well, and a week, because a little turd decided to hang on an extra, an extra week. But there are certainly moments in our lives that will even go as far as to change the very identity of who we are. You're now a graduate, a husband, a wife, a mother, or a father. I think Gideon would argue that this battle of the 300, that this is that moment. He finally fulfilled what that angel had said he was going to be. He's a mighty man of valor. He lived up to his name. He is the destroyer. But pride is a quiet, sneaky sin that is both prevalent and dangerous. And when we see this hidden, sneaky pride within General Gideon, rear its ugly head, it taints the legacy of a great, faithful man. So now the first half of chapter 8 is a story of Gideon pursuing the remaining men that were left in that Medina army. It left about 15,000, so, which really meant that that initial siege, that initial battle, uh, 120,000 men essentially killed themselves. They died in the confusion, and yet these 300 men are still outnumbered 50 to 1, and they're chasing them down. So if you follow along in the rest of chapter 8, they come across, they come across a couple of groups on their way and in the pursuit. The first is a group from Ephraim. 
They were upset that they didn't get to part, they didn't get to take part in that initial glory. So they hear about the victory and they see the pursuing Midianites and they're, they're a little upset because they're like, hey, I, I wanted to be a part of that. Like this is, this is a big moment. So verses one through three of chapter eight show a back and forth between General Gideon and, that, and these men of Ephraim where Gideon, we get to really see that he has a great ability with his words. Uh, he, gets to, he, he essentially made peace. They came after him a little bit. And with his words, he's capable of smoothing over the disagreement that they had. So he's able to kind of push that aside. He moves forward, continuing in pursuit of the Midianites. And he then moves across the Jordan River and comes to the men of Sakath. He asks of the city. At this point, these 300 guys are pursuing these 10,000 men. They're tired. They're worn out. He asks this, this city. He asks the men of the city, who is a believed ally of the Israelites, just for a little bit of hospitality. He asked for a little bit of rest, a little bit of food, and a little bit of water. He wasn't asking them to take up swords. He wasn't asking them to help in the pursuit. Really all he wanted was a little bit of bread and a place to sleep. Well, these men did not give Gideon what he had asked for and actually responded pretty harshly. And so with that, we don't see the same smooth-talking Gideon that we saw with the men of Ephraim, but we actually see uh, a bit of harshness in his words and in his response. And we see a stern Gideon who tells these men that when, not if, but when he finds and conquers the Midianites, that he's going to come after them too, and he's going to make them pay. Now, it's an interesting story, and I think there's an interesting lesson to be gleaned from this. And again, I'm just going to do a quick little rabbit trail with this is oftentimes when we are actively pursuing the will of God in our own lives, discouragement and sometimes even resistance can come from those who we thought were allies. I think this is a reminder that the will of God will always supersede the will of man and it will always supersede the approval of others. That we cannot, and when I say we, I mean Hill City, that we cannot allow this to discourage or hinder our work to the gospel. That we must continue to strive after what is good and true, to push back the darkness in our city, and with the tension of grace and truth, pursue gospel restoration into the lives of others. So Gideon, despite this setback, continues to pursue and push back the Midianites and pursue the last of those leaders in the Midianite army. And so in verses 20 through, or 10 through 21, we see Gideon really with the boldness of a man who had just seen 300 men take on 100, or 135,000, make a surprise attack against the remaining 15,000 and conquer and beat them as well. And then being a man of his word, he then goes back, punishes the men of Sakath as he said he would, and kills the last two leaders of the Midianite army. So as I had said before, Every victory is an opportunity to either receive praise or give praise. And we're down to the last 14 verses of Gideon's life, the last 14 verses of the chapter. And I think what we see, again, that warning to, to ourselves as we're trying to apply the lessons of this, is we get to see how Gideon leaves his family, that we get to see how he leaves his friends and how he sets them up for life after Gideon. 
Now, one of my mentors, a pastor out in California, spent a lot of time as a men's pastor out there and, and subsequently would actually spend a lot of time with many men at the end of their lives. He had been their men's pastor for years, and so oftentimes at the end of their life, he would uh, get called in to kind of help counsel and help in a lot of those, a lot of those aspects of life, oftentimes in the hospital itself. Now, many of these men that he had the privilege of spending time with were Christ-like, strong, moral men who really by their very presence in the room brought hope and joy to those around them. I think of the verse in Romans chapter 5 that says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. I think a lot of us can probably think of, of men on both sides of the spectrum, uh, men who, who were through their disobedience brought a lot of people down, but then at the same time men who, who through their obedience brought people up. And we may not all be great field generals or mighty men of valor, but like Gideon, we all have blast zones of influence. If you think about uh, an impact zone that you have this area around where, where everything else is impacted, they might not be in the epicenter, but there's still a lot of area around where they are impacted. And I think the things that we say and do, whether we realize it or not, impact people within that blast zone of influence. Some people are a little bit closer and get impacted even more directly than some of those that are a little bit farther out, but they still are impacted. So when we think of these two types of men that, that my mentor would come across, uh, oftentimes he might come across an unhealthy, immoral man who is destructive to both himself and others, uh, creating a blast zone of pain and suffering as they attempted to self-preserve, self-indulge, and make themselves maybe more important at the expense of others. And on the flip side, there was the man who was holy, a man who was noble, who created a field uh, that was cleared and ready for harvest of the fruit of the spirit. And, and here in this last section of Judges 8 is a man, Gideon, who yes, will always be known as a great man of faith and a mighty warrior. But he also set for himself, his family, his friends and his country a snare of pride and idolatry that will plague them for a generation. And so starting in verse 22, the men of Israel asked Gideon to rule over them. He asked, uh, he asked Gideon, his son, his grandsons, uh, truly requesting of him to establish a monarchy. He says in verse 22, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. The Hebrew word here for rule is actually the first time it was ever used in the Old Testament. So showing this, it, it truly shows a very unique, uh, and it really shows the heart uh, of the Israelites as they were asking him of this, that they weren't just asking for uh, a politician to help with the little administrative tasks within Israel, but they were truly asking Gideon and exalting him to a position that was probably unhealthy and almost godlike. Now Gideon, uh, again, being a man who knows the right words to say, as we had mentioned earlier, he responds in verse 23, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now, like I said, that's a good response. Actually, I would argue that that is the right response to that. 
And honestly, even in that response, you get an idea that what the people of Israel were asking him was unhealthy, that there was this unhealthy attachment and they were looking for that. However, what happens after this response, I think makes us question Gideon's intentions a little bit because pride, like I stated earlier, lurks in the grass like a lion, waiting for the perfect opportunity to pounce. And I think what we see here at the end of chapter eight is it pouncing. So verses 24 through 26, we see Gideon, after this response, ask uh, the men of Israel for a lot of gold. Again, not just a little bit of gold, a lot of gold. He asked the number in your Bibles is 1,700 shekels. Now, I know shekel isn't exactly a metric unit, so after converting that, uh, it turns, comes out to about 50 pounds of gold. So then in verse 27, he makes an ephod out of it and puts it in Ophrah, which was his hometown. Now, an ephod was something that the high priest would usually wear, which was basically a breastplate with two pockets in it that would essentially help the high priest to determine what the will of God was, whether it essentially turn left or right in that moment. Some theologians argue that his intentions were pure in building that ephod. He wanted to build something of value that would show and remind his people of both of the faithfulness and the will of God. A lot of other theologians argue, and I think even I would argue, that what he did was selfish. That it was done to remind everybody of how good Gideon was. And it was done to make himself look good. And so we see that again as we continue through that story. It says, and Gideon made an ephod out of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Either way you look at it in verse 27, it's the devastation of this move that was made by Gideon and to those around him, that it was a snare for his family, a snare for the people of Israel, and the people whored after it. And I think we can all agree that whenever the Bible uses that word, it's not good. I think we can all come to a consensus on that. Um, and really what he did, again, was he led his people astray in idolatrous worship. And so then, to end it, in verses 29 through 31, um, even though Gideon said that he would never rule over the people, he establishes a king-like harem with many wives and many concubines. It says he would later die at a good old age and be buried in his hometown of Ophrah. And what I would argue is what we have here is a man who in his own words said, I will not rule over you. I don't wanna be your king. I don't wanna do this. I don't wanna take the responsibilities of being a king, but yet he would gladly take all the perks that come with being a king. All the responsibilities, none of the work, or all the reward and none of the work. So then in verses 33 through 35, we see as soon as Gideon died, uh, they turned and whored after other gods and started yet another cycle of sin and rebellion. So what can we take away from Gideon? What can we learn from this man's legacy? You know, like I had mentioned before, what a man is during his life and, and who he is during the big moments of his life will directly impact the people around him. Again, that, that blast zone of influence that he has. But my mentor, as he would sit in the hospital room with, again, the, these countless men from all different kinds of backgrounds, he usually talked to, again, those two types of men. The first would be those faithful servants of God, who we can imagine as they show up in he heaven are welcomed 
with the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. The men whose wives felt appreciated, uh, they were able to serve in many capacities because at home they felt loved and respected. A man whose children grow up in a home where they feel loved and secured, which allow them to develop into a more well-rounded person, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. A man whose friends and neighbors get to see and glean faith, knowledge, wisdom, holiness, and love. It was this kind of man that my mentor would encourage in his final moments to remind his loved ones of truth and to motivate them to pass down the legacy of faith from one generation to the next. The other man is a man whose life was on the opposite end of that spectrum. This is a man who, who might have wandered aimlessly through life, never truly feeling satisfied. They had pursued their own interests their entire lives, really just leaving a minefield of mistakes and anguish. They had chased after every fleeting desire never fully settling despite every chance possible. They ignored obvious blessings and chased worthless idols of their own making, assuring themselves that this one, that this one would be the right one. Well, he would tell these men who had left a wake of emptiness and destruction and depression in their path, he would tell them that now at the end of your life, now is the time to try to make amends. That he would tell them that despite whatever their condition was, whether they were in a hospital bed or otherwise, that you will never be as loud as you are now. He would say that your words carry more weight now than potentially they have ever carried, because this is gonna be the last way that these people will remember you, so make them count. And what I see here in Gideon is, is that first man. He's a man of faith who, who, throughout his entire life, created a legacy of faith. However, at the end of his life, he made decisions based out of selfishness and pride. And decisions that would haunt his family, his friends, and his people for generations. He did not end life like he had lived it. And as a man of faith, of who people looked up to, he relied on himself in those last moments rather than God. And I think they paid for it. So if we look at ourselves in the backdrop of this story, we have to ask, what kind of legacy am I creating? Am I creating a legacy of pain and suffering? Or because of my own selfish ambition, I'm creating a blast zone of pain and devastation around me, ignoring the things that I should be wary of? Or am I creating a legacy of faith? Am I creating a legacy where I bring life, love, and faith to those around me? where my spouse feels appreciated, my kids feel secure, and my friends are better people when we're around. I think the secret to this kind of life, it's no big secret. I think it depends on who you are relying upon. You see, a life where you rely on yourself will tend to give that first one. A life where you just try harder, it tends to lead to a life of frustration and emptiness. But on the other hand, a life reliant on Christ will lead to fulfillment and satisfaction. Fulfillment in plenty or in want. Satisfaction in either good or bad. And it's a life reliant on Christ that takes it off of you and your capabilities and the things that you are capable of 
and rather puts it into the very capable hands of Christ. You see, in Judges chapter 6, Gideon asks for a sign. It's a sign that, that this God that he's speaking to is the same God that he had heard about from his fathers and from his grandfathers to ask if this is the one that I'm speaking to. Is this the one that has the strength and the capacity to do this? But here's the thing. We don't need some saggy piece of cloth to tell us that. Now, here, we don't need some soggy fleece to tell us that. He died on the cross for that. He died on the cross for you to be assured of his faithfulness. He died on the cross for you to have victory over the Midianites in your life. And he died on the cross so you can have a life of fulfillment and satisfaction that you wouldn't have otherwise. The moments of Gideon's life that he truly built his legacy were the ones where he was the most desperate and scared and clung most tightly to God. And I think it's that truth that is both the same for us as it was for Gideon. So I ask you this, who do you rely on? Do you rely on yourself? Have you been relying on, your, on yourself, on your own strength, on your own willpower and determination? Or do you rely on God who created you? He ordered the cosmos into existence. He knows every star in the galaxy and every hair on your head by name. So this morning, as I'm wrapping up, as we prepare to receive communion, I want us to reflect a bit on this truth, to think about the kind of legacy that we're setting up for ourselves. Are we truly relying on ourselves or on God. Now what's gonna be intriguing about the elements that we're, going, that we're preparing to partake in today, you have the bread, which represents the body of Christ, and the juice, which represents the blood. Combining these two things create a bitter taste that you have, have to try to process as you chew it. The bitterness of the juice forces us to contemplate what the blood of Christ truly means and what it means to us in that moment. It lingers. Again, grape juice, it, it will linger with you. It forces us to not just ignore these truths. and does, It forces us not just ignore what Christ did, but rather to come to grips with the truth of what Christ's blood is and what it means to us now. So today, I want you to remember these things meditate on these things and think about the kind of legacy that you're building.